Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am joined, as I usually am, by my co-editor, Catherine Rubino. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Excellent. Well, we have had a jam-packed week of news that we were prepared to go over, and then we had a jam-packed day of news uh, that is (laughs) happening to us right now. So if we sound a little frazzled, it's because you've You've caught us recording as we've been pulled away from trying to figure out exactly what's going on in the world right now. By the time you hear this, obviously this will be old news, but we've gotten the other shoe falling in the Supreme Court case from a month ago about Trump's subpoena by Cyrus Vance, that New York district attorney subpoena for his financial records, which was kicked back down to the district court, and the district court has now turned in their 103-page opinion that sums up, no, no, we're we're right, you have to turn all that over. So I didn't realize how long the opinion was. I I feel like that's weirdly noteworthy. It is weirdly noteworthy. Now, uh, Judge Marrero is Arguable. So you could take different stances on this. I know uh, Mark Joseph Stern from Slate took the stance that it was very scholarly and academic the way he did it and thoughtful. And I kind of took the stance that it was almost unduly indulgent of the arguments. Uh, (laughs) Well, that that said, I mean, judges are allowed to be indulgent from time to time. Obviously, this is a case involving the president of the United States, so that is an issue, and it's a case that is going to be highly scrutinized. I get that, and obviously, I'd rather have a judge do that than to ignore arguments that are being made, which is certainly something we've been seeing and writing about regarding the California bar exam, for instance. That said, the claim, well, this can't be a valid a valid request because it requests the same mm-hmm. things that Congress requested. And if Congress requested them for impeachment purposes, then it can't be the same thing as a criminal hearing in New York. And the judge making the claim, no, your tax records could prove multiple things, yeah, I mean, it's was not just- <laughs> pages of citations and analysis. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of me wants to just, you know, sort of stand up and clap because, you know, just because somebody advances a silly argument doesn't mean it shouldn't be dealt with in full, right? You know, obviously, I I would say obviously that it does, a a tax record reflects many different things and can be used for lots of different things in a bunch of different proceedings. There's lots of information there. I think that's a pretty obvious point, but if you're going to make it, the the judge is pretty clear that there, he's gonna he's gonna have an answer. Yeah, uh, very interesting uh, opinion. Obviously, this sets us up for the Second Circuit to be asked what's going on, which from which they will awake from a slumber and go, "Didn't we already do this?" And <laughs> then a, it's like Groundhog's Day up there. <laughs> and a potential return to the Supreme Court, though it seems as though that would be a fruitless endeavor, given that it was a seven two opinion the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which while the, they didn't rule explicitly on this application of the various allegations to these standards, it's hard to, considering they could have uh, summarily accepted Marrero's original decision, the fact that they sent it back down suggests that they were tacitly admitting that they already agree with all this. So Mm -hmm. at best, I think all that he can hope for is that they set it for 
a perfunctory hearing after the election, but that, I mean, even that may not are, be. But we are getting pretty close to a point timing wise where, where this information may not be released before the election. It's, yeah. It seems I, pretty and, unlikely. And fact. obviously, and one of the arguments made in the opinion is this is not going to be released per se. Grand jury testimony is stuff that you can't get your hands on. Uh, it's a crime to sure. release it. So this is information that will stay with the grand jury. And, you know, we will never know what's in any of this unless, of course, the grand jury finds that there was some sort of criminal activity involved. So, dun, dun, dun. so <laughs> that seems like a so we will if. inevitably see what's in all of this. <laughs> So that's going on. There's been some other criminal stuff going on. Meanwhile, Steve Bannon, we should have a breaking news thing, although it won't be breaking by then. Uh, Steve Bannon was arrested today, arrested by the Postal Service, a much maligned service lately uh, as they've been uh, under attack. I guess a lauded attack. Which which side you're on. I wasn't really saying maligned as in blamed, but you're right. That is what that sounds like. I meant maligned as in they've been kicked around. Sure, um, sure. A service that's had some issues lately, uh, they managed to arrest Steve Bannon because, and this is, well, uh, we'll get into this in a so, second. So, okay, okay, let, let, let's get into the, let, we started with the post office, let's 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 finish out the post office stuff. Why, why, why is the post office arresting folks? <laughs> Fair enough. The post office has inspectors. They, sure, They sure. have a law, internal law enforcement wing. Uh, this is a fraud case that deals with mail fraud, which is the sort of thing that could happen. But, the reason that they're doing it is actually one of the under underappreciated mm-hmm. elements of this that I think is very important. Like, why do you think the post office is doing this? Some good PR? I mean, yeah. I well, no. Uh, <laughs> certainly, it, what it feels like. <laughs> it certainly a- appears as though the reason why the attorney general was trying to fire the U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York was probably to kill this sure, particular I mean, investigation, I, I'm... and it survived largely because the move was made to turn over the investigation to uh, the turn over the office to his deputy. And so that continued Mm -hmm. as Audrey Strauss took over, I believe, at which point what we also, but then we didn't know what the investigation was. And now this little wrinkle of it being the post office is interesting because you would normally do this through the local FBI office. Sure. However, we learned from the impeachment hearings that Mm -hmm. the, as well as some of the fallout from the Comey firing, that the Southern District of New York FBI office is the office that was dubbed in email, internal emails, Trumpland, and the ah. office that was considered responsible for the kind of backdoor investigation of Hillary the week before the election that ultimately resulted in Comey getting fired. And mm-hmm. so... It's viewed as a Trump-friendly leak fest, and so, so it, they appe- wanted to. <laughs> it appears, based on these uh, charges, that what happened here is that the U.S. Attorney's Office independently pursued this investigation by cutting the FBI out of the discussion and using the post office to do all the work. This is deeply which, disturbing for the state of our government. It is. Uh, if sure. the FBI can't follow orders from the Department of Justice, that is a, a problem. Yeah, um, and, and you know, as as you said, this this is not something that kind of started with the inauguration of Donald Trump. This no. was this was something that was happening during the, the lead-up to his election as well. Exactly. The, the office has, theoretically, at least according to what we've seen, this office appears to be highly politicized and it was politicized in the last administration and remains the same way now, which is bad. You know, I think that people looking towards the 2020 election, a lot of folks are are hopeful that 
if we have a change of administration, that a lot of the problems that we're seeing in government will magically be changed. And I think that what we're saying here, showing here is that it's a lot deeper. Uh, yes. So what you're saying is there's such a thing as a deep state. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, shout out to all our QAnon listeners. <laughs> uh, no. Um. Putting that aside, though, it's very interesting that this happened. Uh, this, the, these charges relate to a fundraising effort about building the wall that Steve Bannon was running on and gathering millions of dollars from largely poor Trump people by saying <laughs> that all this money going to him was going to help the effort to get a wall, but it's not clear that it did uh, do a much other than lying pockets is apparently mm -hmm. the allegations. Mm -hmm. Obviously, people are innocent until proven guilty, but he is now, from what we've heard, being looked at for money laundering and a possible 20-year sentence. It's important to know that the group that he fronted that is facing this could spawn some other interesting indictments. The General yeah. counsel of the group was Chris Kobach, the noted Kansas voter suppression guy. The board of directors included Sheriff Clark, who mm. rose to fame there. It also included Kurt Schilling, because of course it did. <laughs> uh, so this could be a so real this is very much a developing the, story. Yeah, yeah. So we we don't know exactly where this is all going to land, but we probably do by Tuesday, which will make this seem really weird. But um, <laughs> but yeah. So that's the busy day that we've been working on, and mm -hmm. we were a little worried about being done in time to record this at our scheduled time, but we made it. The other things that we're worried about are are you worried about a contract deadline? Contract Tools by Paper Software is the most powerful versatile and fully featured Microsoft Word add-in for contracts. For less than a dollar a day, contract tools can help you navigate complex legalese, fix common contract drafting problems, and much more. See for yourself with a seven-day free trial. Go to papersoftware.com forward slash trial and get started today. I love it when I'm not even sure that you're about to like launch into our sponsors. Yeah. And I, I didn't see it coming and I was, I was taken by surprise. Good I, mean, that, I mean, it was Good so, job. so for anyone who's listened to this show long enough, you, you remember when Ellie Mistal was the co-host and he felt the same way. Yeah. He was a very you're excited. Very natural about this. He's this excited is... about how I would try to hide the, uh, hide the ad. <laughs> uh, so speaking of lawsuits and problems that people are facing, sure. Kirkland & Ellis, a yes. fairly important law firm in this world. Very large. They lots make of a money. lot of money. They do make uh, a lot of they money. They also have a lawsuit. You know, there's lots of discrimination lawsuits that come up against big law firms. And, and I guess that, you know, any large employer is going to see its fair number of employment litigation. In the, this particular case, it's an age and disability discrimination lawsuit that a former paralegal has filed against the firm and, and a paralegal who worked at the firm for some 30 years, uh, you know, in, in statements that are not in the complaints, but, you know, statements made to the media around the filing. They were very concerned. They looked suing the law firm at place I'd worked for 30 years is not a decision that I made very easily. It was, you know, hard decision to come to. But they alleged that they had left the firm on medical leave following um, some brain surgery, which doesn't sound fun. Uh, <laughs> and when they returned, they had to reapply for their job and take a online proficiency exam. And several people were let go. And they alleged that all of them are over 55. And that at the same time they were being let go, the firm was also advertising on its website new positions that read identical to the position that they had previously mm -hmm. held. 
So KE has not made any real public statement about it yet. It's still very early. They haven't filed an answer. So, you know, we shall see what happens. But those are the allegations as they stand right now. Oof. That's a new one and one that reads as pretty low, you yeah. know? But yeah, we'll I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it was like that she like had just gotten back from brain surgery and was kind of launched into this employment thing that, you know, even if everything was, you know, done by the books and, and whatnot, it, it does strike you as poor timing at, at, at a minimum. Yeah. So I will say that in the to transition, if okay. we, we can may, sure. um the phrase it, it. So you um you have relatives who are English. I do. And I do. The, My brother-in-law. Um, yeah. And so in. In England, certain terms that we use here have different meanings. Sure, that um, is true. Sure, like, a jumper is a, is a sweater. Sure, yeah, sure. an elevator is a lift. Sure, there. yeah, sure. you know. Um, I'm I'm fascinated to know where this is going. Well, like normally, to ma- if you're making fun of somebody or having some fun at their expense, having a laugh. No, oh, there's having a laugh. But I was saying like uh, taking a piss on people. Uh, oh. There's also the um, there's also you know getting yeah. drunk is getting pissed. Uh, so. Sometimes, though, these things have the same meaning, which would be (laughs) in the UK, they took an ethics exam for lawyers, which is similar to our MPRE, like we are in this country, though apparently slightly more successfully than we are. Uh, They had an (laughs) online administration of the exam with remote proctors, and these remote proctors would not let people get up from their desks or even look away from the computer camera. (laughs) Which is unfortunate if you had to use the restroom during that time. And people did. as it turns out, uh, they did need to use the restroom, and they were told that they would be failed if they were to do so. And many of them, we have learned from social media, including pictures, uh, <laughs> took the option of dumping the water out of their water bottles while not looking at it because they couldn't look. They had, right, to, had to just keep stare maintain at the eye contact with your screen. Right. They dumped water bottles and used those. I mean, I, I think one person said they used a bucket, which I was like, where did you get a bucket mid-exam? Well, that's, fa- um, that's fair. I, I, I think that... No, right? There's definitely a water bottle, uh, I think, on Twitter as well. Is it possible sure. that that's another one of these Englishisms we don't know and the bucket means like waste paper basket or something? Could be. Could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe, maybe that's perhaps, the, perhaps, yeah. perhaps. Which, you know, that, that does make uh, a fair amount of sense but it definitely takes the whole uh concern about big brother always having their eye on you to another level i mean people are are, are, are peeing yes on camera yeah. i mean i guess the camera's not catching that part but it's it's deeply disturbing yeah i mean i don't know what else to say about it that's that sounds real shitty um and here's the thing right if you if it was an in-person exam people would obviously be allowed to go to the restroom, right? And and they were. Yeah. There was an, a corresponding in-person exam going on and that. Which, I mean, I guess it also seems like, you know, for folks who might be immunocompromised and have to take it online because we, we're not, you know, up to, you know, full pre-COVID restrictions these days, that that's really putting an added burden on folks that already have perhaps some some medical issues or protections that... Yeah. that is really problematic. Yeah, I mean, it also speaks to, uh, and the story didn't really focus on this, but, you know, in America, we dealt with bar exams that were particular blind spots to feminine uh, hygiene stuff. Like, this obviously would be compounded in these sorts of situations. Oh, gosh, I didn't even think about that, right? If you needed to change your tampon, that would be significantly more difficult. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's, yeah, that's that's a rough one. This is what happens when you reach a point where your dogged devotion to the, the rule, rule, we've got to take a test, runs afoul of the fact that you can't actually take tests in a reasonable manner 
under the conditions that we're currently living in. But I mean, I mean, I understand that that's your point and, and you've you've been making a very compelling case for diploma privilege, particularly during COVID-19, but they could also just let people go to the restroom. Right. Well, right? I mean, like yeah. it's not it's not like the proctored exam follows somebody into the stall and watches them at every given moment, right? Like that th- that's not true. I don't know why. Maybe you want to set a time limit, well, you know, you can't spend 25 minutes in there, fine. Okay. Well, but but they can they can at the physical exam know that you went to the bathroom without a phone. They can know you went to the bathroom without notes that you don't otherwise have. Mm-hmm. They, they can guarantee you didn't do anything there. And on a remote exam, once you step away from that camera, you could do anything, theoretically. Now, I I don't justify this, but that's their argument. There's a lot you can do with your eyes looking at the camera beyond the screen, right? Sure. There's also there's other ways to cheat, but that's that's different than the argument you were making, which is let people pee. W- people can pee at the on premises test, and right. I was like, yes, they can, and that's covered. Right. It was more my point. But God, you know, this is one of those moments where I really wish we had the uh, sound effect board back because I think there's a <laughs> flushing sound effect that we could really roll with here. That'll have to be your uh, second half of quarantine project. Is yeah, finding. no, I, I'm I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna get back. <laughs> so. That's what's going on uh, there. We have uh, what? What, uh, what else well, are we talking about? I the guess DNC, the Democratic National Convention, is That's concluding real. right now. There was, um, I did see that there were some legal tech conversations at it. I don't know if you saw that. I didn't. Mm. Uh, how, what what legal tech things are they talking about at the DNC? Well, so Rocket Lawyers CEO uh-huh. actually spoke at oh, wow. the DNC uh, as part of a panel, small business innovation panel. So. That's cool. You know, cool to see legal tech getting its attention. Shout out. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. this was this was actually an, an interesting week for legal tech. I'm not going to belabor this for too much. Uh, if you want to hear more about this, you should probably listen to the Bob Ambrosi show that I uh, am a panelist on because I think I'm going to talk about it a lot there. But we did see this week a legal tech company do some pro bono work of their own, uh, mm-hmm. setting up their platform to help out. Uh, police reform movement using contract analytic tools to well, figure out what's in police union contracts across jurisdictions mm-hmm. and stuff. It, very interesting work. Right. But that aside, my legal tech shout outs aside there, <laughs> let's get the DNC. Uh, yeah. They have a convention going on. Yes. Uh, and they talked by, about a lot of big themes last yeah, night. And by, yeah. by all accounts from the ratings I see, none of you are watching it. But what is happening <laughs> is that uh, they have these little videos where people are chatting mm-hmm. and they're talking about big ticket issues. Mm-hmm. And this is to discuss our old friend, Ellie Mistal, the former host of this show. Sure. He feels as though they are not talking enough about the Supreme Court. Well, uh, I mean, they're not really talking about the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising yeah. he takes that stance given that his job is to write about the Supreme Court for a left-leaning publication. So um, <laughs> I feel like he might have a bit of self-interest in his sure. complaint here. The more you say, the easier it is for me to right. write the words. So we're, we're going to go sure. ahead and say that's what's going on. But, sure, but, yeah. I, but I mean, I think that it has been a longstanding problem with the left is not recognizing the import of federal courts. And it's something you've written about previously as well, you know, kind of how to make the courts an issue that gets people to the voting booth. It is on the right. The right wing uh, is able to utilize the Supreme Court, particularly in the area of uh, abortion and female reproductive health, uh, in order to get people out and to vote even when regardless of their particular feelings for a candidate. And that has been a much greater challenge on the left. And, and you know, the speeches last night talk about climate control, talk about gun control, talk about you talk about reproductive freedom. But all of those things have have sort of the Supreme Court 
looming over it. It's currently, you know, five, four majority for, for conservatives. And, you know, if Biden loses, there's going to be an even greater swing on the Supreme Court. And frankly, in federal courts, you know, leading up to the Supreme Court, Donald Trump has already nominated more folks to the federal judiciary than anyone else. Part of the problem here is that the latter half of the 20th century resulted in a bit of a party realignment, obviously party mm-hmm. realignment in ways that we often talk about. But in another way, it re- resulted in a party realignment in views of how the court operates. As a historical matter, the court has always been conservative, whether that's little C or big C conservative, you can uh, vary with little time, C for sure. but it has always been little C conservative. Its job is to rein in mm-hmm. governments. It, right, and, it's, it's, its job is not to create laws, right? It's to interpret and them. And historically, that puts it in a big C conservative world mm-hmm. as people have, as elected leaders have attempted to address concerns with the country, the courts exist to prevent them from doing so. The latter half of the 20th century with the Warren Court and stuff like that resulted in this weird disconnect where liberals started liking courts uh, and And seeing them as a value, which... And I think that in in most kind of liberal artsy sorts of education, you get the sense that the courts will save us from ourselves, right? You know, when things get really bad, the court will say, no, we can't segregate schools. Right. And the problem with this is that it resulted in a realignment that is is to the detriment of Mm -hmm. liberal organization because they started to believe in kind of a... They, the Supreme Court is an awkward institution. It was never the sort of thing that was meant to be uh, people being there for life. It was life tenure, but nobody actually thought right. people would stick Pe- around people for st- life. People step down all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they would uh, go and do other things. <laughs> I mean, we, we had justices who stepped down before ever hearing cases before in sure. the original days, and that's what people thought this would be. So what you have is a kind of an anathema to the rest of the constitutional order. You have a life-tenured aristocracy who gets a veto power over everything Everything. that people get to do. (laughs) That is something that a more progressive party, be that the early 20th century Republican Party or the latter 20th century and early 21st century Democratic Party, that's an institution that they should not really be applauding. It runs contrary to their goals. And so they're in an awkward place. It's hard for them to say, elect us so we can have a the monarchy be our people. Uh, that seems bad. <laughs> sure, However, but, but, but if the monarchy is the other people, it's way worse. <laughs> well, right. So, but it, but that it speaks to how you can't really organize around a Supreme Court. You how, can't yeah. really get people to say, "Vote for us, so that we can, you know, screw the system. Vote for us, so that we can ensure that mm-hmm. future generations don't get what they vote for honored." And that's really where we are. And that it's a quirk of history, but. Part of the reason why liberals are always uncomfortable, I think, defending courts is that deep down they would prefer a world in which problems that exist are addressed by organizing, voting, and a result coming. I mean, but the kind of flip side to this, and and maybe it's unsurprising, you know, as someone who is a lawyer and, you know, kind of got that indoctrination, Mm -hmm. that I think there does need to be a greater emphasis from the left about the import of courts, not just because absent this, there'll, there'll be a problem, but there really needs to be a recognition that if you don't like it, if there's a problem, it, like you say, you know, uh, the structure of the court is is a historical problem and we need to change, then make that 
part of the platform. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about what we should do to the Supreme Court. Should there be term limits? Should there be uh, age limits? You know, there, there's lots of there's lots of things out there that people are talking about, but but the left is not. And I think yeah. that like you know, just from a pragmatic point of view, I think that lawyers, you know, as liberal or conservative as you may be, often are a lot more pragmatic about because they deal with sort of the cases and controversies as they arise. So there's mm -hmm. a there's a pragmatism built into the profession and there is a moment that is being missed by not publicizing that and not making that a talking point. And here's the other thing too. RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, is you're already your built-in liberal star. Now, listen, I, I don't think she's perfect. And there's, I think there's actually a lot of th problematic things she's done throughout the years. But, but here's the thing: she's great. There's a lot. There's movies about her. There's there's swag for her. Everyone, you know, every liberal has an RBG thing, and that seems like a built-in opportunity to really capitalize on it the way that the right doesn't. There's no kind of superstar of the right-wing judiciary the way their built-in is for RBG, and you would really think that some PR-minded individual will be able to use that and capitalize upon that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just, it. there's always been this kind of unseemliness to the idea of Governing politics. is unseemly. Well, Governing the is idea, unseemly. No, the idea of the Supreme Court being drawn into politics has always see, struck people as largely unseemly. Mm -hmm. They are supposed to be a non-dangerous branch. They're supposed to be sequestered from it. But it's a myth, and right. it and, needs and I think to that be exploded. Station. So years ago, um, I actually gave a, I was at an event, and I made the point that I thought that Ted Cruz had said something mm -hmm. about the importance of getting, of making some term limit push. Right. As a conservative, he thought that we needed term limits on the Supreme Court. Now, his argument at the time was very much guided by the idea that the Republicans would not win in sure. 2016 and so on. But this was a couple years before this, I think 2014, but he was seeing it in the distance. And I made the point that this is where Democrats should, should move. Right. They should run, not walk, to forging an alliance with Ted Cruz and getting a term limit system in place, which there are constitutional questions. There are also arguments that have been advanced by folks like Larry Tribe, that there are ways that would, where the Supreme Senior Court would lar lar largely mimic circuit courts mm -hmm. where people would be allowed to be Supreme Court justices forever, but once they reach senior status, they would leave the active panel. They could be involved to cover recusals, recusals and yeah. stuff like that. Sure. But that sort of a world is something that was being talked about. And I said, we should run, not walk toward that. And at the time, given that Everyone assumed that Democrats were going to win, win uh, re-election, and yeah. it was going to go on for for at least four, maybe not another eight years. I was more or less laughed out of the room by, uh, you know, I was uh, mm -hmm. at a liberal conference by all these people saying, "No, what are you talking about? We're going to own the courts forever." And I was like, "See, you shouldn't and, and, try to own things." <laughs> well, that, I think that's definitely true, and I think this also is is very much a parallel. Is is kind of well, maybe not a parallel, but. You know, as much as you say that, you know, advancing this kind of lowercase c institution as a liberal ideal is, is, you know, questionable and problematic, there's the other thing that sort of happened in modern left-wing political circles, which is kind of the advancement of elitism, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, it's not good enough to just be smart.
marked on your, you know, being a hard worker. You have to have gone to the right schooling and have the right education and sort of the advancement of the elitism that has gone hands in hands with with kind of left wing politics as such as they currently exist. But I also think that that the Supreme Court plays into that affinity for elitism. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only like, yeah. what, three law schools represented on, on the Supreme Court, you know, and, and even in a world where there is a more di- educational diversity on the Supreme Court, there's still a barrier. Right. Because you have to you have to have gone to law to college. You have to have gone to law school. You have to kind of hit these educational mark, you know, tallies on in your in your column. And I think that that really is something that is very appealing towards the sort the uh, elitism that has grown up and become a hallmark of the modern Democratic Party. Yeah, the, the uh, technocratic elitism, which you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some of us who would suggest that that was part and parcel of the downfall in 2016, uh, a heavy reliance on it. And you're right, the Supreme Court, to the extent it is an icon on among liberal circles, even though they don't talk about it, things, it is very much a, well, we want to rule that forever so Mm -hmm. that, you know, the smart people can, can stop the rabble. And it's Mm -hmm. a, it's a very old school. Smart people will, will fundamentally be more liberal. It's an old school federalist worldview, Mm -hmm. which seems out of step. There's an argument to be had that the realignment. I mean, there's a reason why Hamilton is like the number one right. show on Disney yeah, Plus right it, now, right? and and loved by yeah, that community. I think that, that exact yeah. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the realignment that took place mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the civil rights movement impacts this, but is not the only realignment happening. There mm-hmm. is a a linked but not overlapping align realignment going on regarding the ways in which elitism and mm-hmm. technocracy is interacting with more popular appeal. And how that gets resolved, I think, is going to have a lot to do with what happens with the court going forward. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you all for listening. Uh, You should be subscribed to the show. You should be giving it reviews, writing some stuff. Uh, That certainly helps when the algorithm goes around and says, what's a legal podcast out there? Oh, this one where people say, cool story about the Supreme Court in the comments. That's what they see. And then the algorithm goes, oh, then we should promote that to people. And that's good because it helps all of us out. Thanks also to Paper Software and their Contract Tools product, uh, which you should check out. You should be listening to the other shows on the Legal Talk Network, as well as the Jabot, Catherine's show about diversity in law firms, and uh, our ATL COVID cast, our special report series on COVID's impact on the legal industry, and the aforementioned Ambrosi show that I'm a guest on. You should be reading Above the Law as always. Follow us. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One, the numeral one, uh, at, at Twitter. On Twitter, at on Twitter, Twitter, on the on, on, the, on the tweet box, on the twits. Um, yeah, and so with all of that said, I think, Peace. yeah, I think we're done. It just feels like there's something else I'm supposed to say, but I, I've forgotten what it is. Whatever it is, those of you who usually listen this late in the show, you know what it is, so it's fine. Uh, and so we will chat again later. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. 
and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.